Hi, welcome to Still in the Storm. I'm Mike Donio. Um, before I dig into the topic for the week, which is one that certainly is on a lot of people's minds, and I've been asked uh, a lot about to to comment on this. Um, I've talked about it a lot in my interviews, but I don't think I've really gotten into it with any kind of great depth here uh, in Still in the Storm. So I wanted to start the discussion on that topic here uh, with a bit of a primer, and I'll I'll get to what that is in a second. So um, I want to kind of redirect for a minute, but that kind of gives you a little bit of a teaser. Um, before I get into that, two things. One, what I want to try to do is um, to provide, I guess, notable updates on kind of things going on around kind of the health freedom movement. Um, you know, there's, there's, we're being barraged with a, a tremendous amount. I mean, more than a tremendous amount of information. It's, it's like a fire hose, right? And so it can be very, very hard to discern what is important? What should we put our mind to? Um, I mean, for me, my focus is always on Jesus Christ, but we need to we need to really sometimes step back and kind of think about like, okay, I'm getting so much information. I'm getting so much new articles and things from different people I'm following on Substack or on here or there. There's all these new videos that everyone's telling me, you got to see this or you got to see that. I don't have enough. There's only 24 hours in the day. I, I just don't have enough time to consume all of this, right? So what? how do I know what's important? You know, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, I hate to say it, but they are being deceptive. So, you know, I think it's critical that we discern, we understand what, what is most important, what are, what are things that we want to focus our attention on. And so, you know, if it's valuable, I will try to, if things pop up on my radar that I think are particularly interesting or important or, you know, remarkable, I'll try to mention that um, either in the actual post or perhaps a little bit at the beginning of these videos, uh, just as kind of an, an update. Another thing that I want to do that I've been thinking about and that I mentioned actually last night um, on Twitter was that I think, um, you know, there are so many people out there that have been affected by COVID, right? Whether it's the vaccine mandates, people that have given up their careers, their their income, everything, you know, much like I did. Um, but then also a, a lot of people that are injured, from these vaccines. So, you know, they, they need our help in a, in a big, big way. Um, you know, and it's one thing to be fighting and trying to, um, you know, put legal challenges out there against companies and against these mandates and um, fight back and try to get the vaccines taken off the market and things like that. I mean, that's important, but like, there's a lot of people that just need support. They're trying to 
you know, maybe feed their family for this week or something like that, or pay the rent or, or whatever they need. And, um, you know, or they're trying to develop a new income stream to provide for their family. And so I said, you know, I don't have a huge following. Um, and you know, that's not something that, that necessarily matters that much to me. Um, although, you know, I, I will admit censorship is definitely an issue, but I'm more than happy to take my following, my small following, and promote and help anyone that needs it, you know, because um, if I'm not willing to utilize the gifts that I've been given by God, then, you know, what good am I? So um, if if I can be of help in any way using my, again, relatively small platform to help promote or whatever, anybody that needs it, please let me know. And, you know, that's something I'll, I'll add into the, to the posts to, you know, I can put out tweets or, or whatever, even, you know, mention things on, on these videos. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to say that as well before jumping into the topic. So without further ado, let me get into the topic for this week. It is drum roll viruses. Um, I want to keep this video relatively short, so I don't want to, I'm not going to give the whole history of viruses and talk about everything that I've done um, personally in the field of virology, you know, and every little nook and cranny of what virology is and what, you know, all the parts of it that are, that are, uh, that I take issue with, which is a lot of it. Um, If there's things that I don't mention today and you want to know more please let me know in the comments if you want me to dig deeper to to elaborate more on some of the things that I do mention today let me know that as well I'm happy to put together um you know a presentation or something for now I just want to keep this as like a primer keep it as simple and as easy to digest as possible so I want to hit on two key points or areas um, and these have to do with what I see as um, critical limitations to science and the ability of science to properly answer the question of whether viruses exist and whether viruses are capable of causing disease if, in fact, they were to be proven to exist. Um, and these have to do with visualization as well as isolation. Um so what do I mean by visualization? Well, that has to do with the ability to to see something, right? I was actually kind of surprised. I fully admit that I take a heck of a lot for granted as a scientist. I've spent a tremendous amount of time looking at things under microscopes and um, cultured a lot of different cell types and things throughout my 20 years. And so I take a tremendous amount for granted. I fully concede that. I was very surprised to hear over the course of the last couple of years that a lot of people, non-scientists, actually thought that you could see, visualize viruses under a light microscope. And so therefore, when a scientist or a doctor would come out, you know, and they're saying, oh, we've identified a novel coronavirus that's causing this disease, COVID, that they actually took a patient sample, uh, 
lung fluid or from the from a nose nasal sample and put it under a microscope and they could see the virus but that's not not only is that not true it's not possible um you cannot get to the level of magnification required to see a particle the size that a virus is in theory to be um viruses are submicroscopic they're below the threshold of magnification of a standard light microscope um all a light microscope does is of course it uses light to illuminate the the sample but it uses various levels of magnification to visualize something that you can't otherwise see clearly with the naked eye so think of it like um reading glasses or a magnifying glass on steroids that you can dial up to the umpteenth degree and really hone in on something that you couldn't see with the naked eye, like a cell or a, you know, a bacteria or something like that, that you can readily see under a microscope, but you can't easily see and differentiate an individual cell with the naked eye. You know, no one would claim that. Um, but there's a limit, right? There's a limit to the amount of magnification I can go to, get to uh, on a regular light microscope. Therefore, there's a limit to the size of a particle, of a cell, of a thing that I can see under that microscope. Well, particles that are the same size as what a virus would be are too small to be visualized under a light microscope. You can't go to a high enough level of magnification. So right off the bat, we can ascertain that we're not able to visualize. A light microscope is the best way to visualize a live sample or a sample that's taken from directly from a living organism. Now, I want to back off really quickly. Whenever we take a sample out of an organism, whether it's tissue, whether it's um, something like a fluid, lung fluid, nasal fluid, blood, saliva, something else, whenever you take that out, any kind of a sample out of a living organism, a human being or an animal, if you're studying in an animal model, you you change that system. You change that sample. It's not the same as it was when it was in the living organism. So right there, you're you're changing it in some way. You're not seeing exactly what was occurring in that organism. Now, if you could go and you could throw that, like I can take blood out of my fingertip or whatever, and I can put it on a slide and look at it under or in a dish or something and look at it under a microscope, and I can see stuff there. I can see cells, right? That came directly from my body. I haven't, I don't have to manipulate that. Now, I can't exactly differentiate and say, this is this cell, this is, I mean, I, you know, very, it's very crude, but I can see cells. I can visualize that, okay, I took my blood and then there's this stuff in there. I didn't have to manipulate it. I can't do that. I can't take a sample like that and see a virus under that that microscope. So already I've taken the sample, tissue or whatever, and by taking it out of the living organism, I've perturbed, I've manipulated, I've changed the, the system, the sample. In order to get to a level of magnification required to visualize something the size of a of a virus that kind of a particle like an exosome virus you have to do electron microscopy in order to do electron microscopy you have to manipulate the sample tremendously you have to create very thin slices 
of these samples, you have to fix them, which requires treatment with very harsh and toxic chemicals. And then you have to stain them, which typically uses um, these heavy metal stains that displace some of the contents of the, the cells or the, the tissue. And they are what allow, they are what allow visualization under an electron mi- microscope. That's how you image um, under, under that electron microscope. So you're not, again, you're, you're significantly manip- further manipulating this sample that's already taken out of it in, an organism, living organism. You're changing it. Then you're manipulating it significantly again before you're putting it under this electron microscope that then you're trying to claim that what you're visualizing there is a realistic interpretation of what occurred in the living organism. Well, that's just, it's just not the case. You can't make that assertion. Um, In fact, people have shown that there's a high propensity to develop and see artifacts under electron microscopy um, as a result of the procedures done to this done to the samples. So, um, although it is the best available tool that we can visualize things at that level of magnification, things that are too small to be visualized under a light microscope, I'm just saying it has significant limitations. Many scientists will not discuss limitations; they skirt around them and then use other indirect methods to attempt to um, tell tell the story, stitch things together, make assumptions, and then, okay, we've got a settled science, when in reality, you're just kind of stitching things together that are not a realistic, again, depiction of reality, of, of nature. Um. And electron microscopy may have uses. It may be the best tool to get to that, to visualize something of that size. But I want to make clear that by no means is it a realistic depiction of something that's occurring in a living organism in nature. Um, It's to get to that point, you have to significantly perturb the sample. You've changed the system dramatically. Um, so we have to be very careful in terms of what we're concluding and what we're what we're pick, pulling out of this stuff. Um, the main key thing there is it's impossible to directly visualize what we're claiming to be a virus in in living tissue directly in a living organism or in in tissue or a sample that's directly taken out of a uh, a living organism. So we can't ever see it in its native environment. So that's a problem. Right, right there, right off the bat. If somebody says, somebody actually says to me, have you ever actually seen a virus? You've studied viruses. I've studied um, HIV and HCV. I've not done electron microscopy. I've done a lot of, I've utilized a lot of imaging techniques and done a lot of microscopy, not electron microscopy. I'll be upfront there. But there's, I can, I can safely say that there is no way to visualize what is supposed to be a virus in a in a primary sample without significant manipulation and perturbation of that sample. So that's an issue, and it's a significant limitation, and, and one that many scientists will not concede. Another thing is isolation. So when we talk about isolation, we're talking about generating a, a pure sample. 
Now, scientists, virologists have a different definition of isolation than what you might, if you look in Webster's Dictionary or something like that, it would talk about isolation, purification. It'll say something like separating something from everything else, right? So in this context, it would be we want to separate viral particles from anything else that's in the sample. So if I take a lung fluid sample or a blood sample, there's going to be other stuff in there, a lot of other stuff. Um, and, you know, if if you're doing proper science, if I'm making a claim, uh, a hypothesis that X causes Y, let's say that this novel virus is causing this disease, which is comprised of a complex of symptoms, then to truly do it in a proper scientific manner, I need to have that virus, that's the independent variable, by itself to be able to properly study it, know that anything that I find is definitely, definitively coming from that virus, whether we're talking about a genome or proteins or any other characteristic um, or any any function that we're assigning to it, right? Now, the idea with viruses really quickly is that they are basically parasitic organisms. They're, they're, they're inert. They, they're not alive to themselves. They require a host, a cell to replicate. That is what it, the way that this is supposed to work. So it's, it's a very tiny submicroscopic inert particle that doesn't have any metabolic or other activity that entirely is dependent on a cell in a living organism to replicate and pretty much do anything. Um, so that, you know, that means it's entirely random in terms of how it gets anywhere or infects something. It's an entirely random process and it is entirely dependent on other things. It can't do anything by itself. Um, so that's just to give an idea of like, what are these things supposed to be? Um, but, and and so, you know, in order to study that, like many people will claim in, in virology that we need to put these things onto cells to, to amplify these particles so that we can study them, we can isolate them, we can see what their function is, um, look for things like CPE, they, they use a lot of indirect methods. I mean, on top of the fact that Using cell cultures is entirely uh, entirely problematic to begin with. Um, I can get into that stuff a lot more if if there's interest, but um, you know, so that's what is kind of thought of as isolation in the typical virology lab setting. The problem is, according to a purist approach application of the scientific method, you would need that independent variable, that virus by itself. If your hypothesis is, let's say, for example, SARS-CoV-2 is the causative agent of COVID-19. You would need SARS-CoV-2 by itself to conduct a proper experiment. The thing is that that, that just hasn't occurred. So, but there's a there's a complexity right there. I'm talking about like with electron, like with visualization, what is actually possible or what is a limitation of science? And so many people, although there are procedures, and I'll, I'll give a brief summary of, of ways that you can get a, a much more 
you know, pure sample, it is likely impossible to get an absolute pure sample of just virus, viral particles, virions, and nothing else. So that creates a conflict, right? Because then you technically can't do it in the most proper, ideal fashion to truly know that you have this particle and it looks this way and it has this makeup and it does X, Y, Z. Um, you you have to settle with a lot of indirect um, methods and models and and understanding that, you know, there's going to be other contaminants in any, any given sample. Um, so the thing is, if, if you wanted to try to create this, this pure sample isolation, you start out with say, again, I'm, I'm talking about here, like a pa- sample from a patient, which again, a lot of people will tell you, I was told when I was doing, uh, HIV research, I wanted to know why you couldn't, why we weren't like studying virus taken from a patient sample. And, you know, the answer is generally there's not enough. And I've heard the same thing about coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2 that you can't get enough in a patient sample, which of course begs the question of, well, how is it making people sick then? But that's, you know, kind of another discussion. So, but let's just say theoretically, the the goal would be again, because I want to try to say, how do we, how do we, the best case would be to take something, tissue, a sample of some sort from a living organism, a human or an animal, if you're studying it in an animal, and to visualize this particle in in as most the most natural setting possible. So the best case would be if you could take that sample, fluid sample tissue, and process it in such a way that you could purify, isolate, the viral particles from everything else, right? So in order to do that, you can go through a number of steps to, to kind of crude purification steps, centrifuge the sample, spin it at a high speed, pull down gross particulate matter. Um, you can do different kinds of filtration to filter out large particulate matter. But if you really want to try to get more precise in terms of size, you have to do what's called density gradient centrifugation. Typically, you create a sucrose gradient, which is where you stack layers of sucrose at different densities on top of each other in a tube. You apply your sample to the top, you speed, you spin at a high speed, and then the sample settles, separates based on size of particles at those different densities, and each density is is basically is approximately attributed to a specific size and you can go down and you can pull out a band at a given density and that will be all of the particles that were in that sample that were at approximately a a specific size right but that doesn't get you specific you can't you're going to get anything that's of that size so there's there's lots of things you can find in sample in any given sample that are likely to be particles that are approximately, you know, fall within the range where um, a virus would be. And, um, you know, like exosomes, for example. I'm not saying that exosomes are being confused as viruses. I can talk about exosomes another time, but I'm just saying that there are particles that will settle at the same size. So again, 
you're lim- even though you might be able to hone in a little bit, you're still limited with being able to say, okay, I separated virus particles from everything else. I can concentrate it. I can get it more. I can do purification steps and get it more pure than the crude sample that came right out of your nose or out of your lung or from your blood. But I still can't be 100% sure that I, I can't get just viral particles and nothing else. Um, so again, it becomes an imp- a limitation, right? People are saying this is an impossibility to do this. Well, then we have a conundrum because in order to do this properly, according to the scientific method, we need these this pure sample, but we can't get that. So scientists just then say, okay, well, we're going to use these indirect methods and these things, you know, in cell cultures and things and then assume that what we're seeing based on certain reasoning is because of a virus. But that's fallacious. It's illogical in many cases. Um, And so, you know, what I want to kind of leave you with is the problem is most scientists, you know, again, I've been there will not admit the limitations of science, despite the massive technological advances that we see in many labs. And I've worked in labs with incredibly fancy equipment that's, you know, uh, has a price tag of a, you know, a very fancy sports car, let's say, or something like that. Um, So we're talking very fancy, high-end, you know, equipment, but that still has significant limitations, issues, air. Um, So... We need to be clear that despite the technology, despite the many tools and things that we have in labs nowadays, there are still significant limitations to what science can give us, to the knowledge that it can provide. And this is where it becomes critical to understand not only what is true science, how to how it should be done, but how it should be used and what its limitations are. And perhaps this is a situation where when we understand the limitations and we understand how those impact our ability to gain knowledge and understanding of whether a virus exists and is a causal factor in disease, can science truly give us that answer? It certainly, science cannot give us absolute truth. So it's not going to give us a 100% settled answer. That's impossible. But can it, you know, what kind of an answer or knowledge can it give us to this? And, you know, that's something most people don't consider because we just assume that science is the source for that knowledge. Um, But if there are these significant limitations to be able to conduct science in in this case of virology in an appropriate manner, is is it the the best or, you know, certainly it doesn't seem that it should be the only source of knowledge. Um, and so that's just something that, that I think is important to consider that I'll kind of leave you with. Um, I want to kind of wrap this up before this gets too long. This does lead us, you know, I can certainly dig deeper into some of these topics or, you know, anything else with respect to virology. Let me know in the comments, you know, if you want me to expand on, on, either of these or anything else. What I'd like to do and why I kind of wanted to lead off with this as a primer is get into some discussion about this gain of function stuff that's going on. Um, 
I have a considerable amount of my experience in virology is with creating what I would call um, pseudoviruses or virus-like particles and manipulating them and trying to then make claims that I'm, you know, you're studying a virus and doing various things and mutating things and introducing various genes and, you know, a lot of genetic manipulation and then going and creating particles in a lab that have really no bearing on what's, what is or isn't going on in nature. And that's what you find in a lot of scientific labs and research nowadays is what goes on is not really depicting nature at, at all. It's very synthetic. Um, and so that's, I, I want to, you know, continue this discussion. I wanted to get to, to, to discuss some of that stuff, but I'm happy to dig deeper into other areas of virology. Let me know in the comments if this is valuable, what else you'd like to know on this. Um, I could, like I said, I could do a bigger presentation, whatever is helpful. This is, this is not for me or to hear myself speak. I want this to be valuable to you. So let me know. Until next time, don't stop questioning the science. And thank you, God bless, and out for now.